Hey everybody, you're back with the Menschwarmers. Uh, this is Jamie and Gabe. We got a great show for you today. We're back from our hiatus. Jamie in the Holy Land, me eh, here. Yeah. Uh, we got a great show for you today. Going to talk about some goings on, a little catching up, uh, sports news involving Jews. And then we have an interview with Lou Eisen, uh, boxing historian, uh, selection committee member for the International Boxing Hall of Fame. And he, he tells us uh, a lot about the history of Jews in boxing going back uh, all the way to the 18th and 17th century. That's absolutely right. A long, long time ago, uh, mostly in Europe, obviously, before they came over here to start fighting, Jews have been fighting their way out of the ghetto and fighting their way out of poverty for a very long time. Um, and probably a story uh, back from the bare knuckle days where it's likely that a Jewish person invented the idea of moving your feet during yeah, a boxing match. That's right. Or it wasn't just a slobber knocker of two men jostling at each other. So stay tuned for that interview. Uh, before we get to that, we have an announcement from our, uh, I don't want to say sponsor because they're not paying us, but uh, we have an announcement from the Canadian Jewish News. So that our, our patrons. That our patrons leads me to beg a question. Uh, Jamie, what's the best thing you've ever written? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I've written some good factums for emotions in relation to law. Good legal briefs. Uh, my wedding vows, maybe. I don't oh, know. your wedding vows are very important. Do you think that your wedding vows would be worthy of a prize, perhaps a literary prize? I mean, it won me a prize in one sense, uh, but uh, in a literary sense, not not so much. Well, uh, our sponsor today is the CJN Prize for Young Writers, uh, which is open to all Canadian aspiring young writers between the ages of 18 to 29. Wow, does, Jews and non-Jews. It does say all Canadian writers. Um, something tells me that uh, one of the people we're going to talk about this week in our story, uh, Golf Channel writer Brinkley Romine is probably not likely to well, win. This, I'm sure this is really relevant to both of our non-Jewish listeners who might uh, qualify for this <laughs> prize. Um, well, probably. But it's the uh, Canadian uh, CJN Prize. It is open to all Canadian writers between the ages of 18 and 29. Uh, please send in your submissions to the CJN prize at the cjn.ca for any personal essay written from 18 to 29 year olds. And you win 10 highs of money. No, that's a lie. A hundred highs of money for that one. So that's $1,800. That's right. Wow. That's not bad for for essay writing. So, uh, if you're a Canadian writer between the ages of 18 and 29, uh, you can follow if you follow us at the CJN podcast Facebook page. There's more information there, uh, or on at Menchwarmers. We'll be posting a link to the submissions on our Twitter page at Menchwarmers or at CJNews.com. There's more information there. Absolutely. So with that said, let's talk about our week. Uh, how was Israel? Uh, Israel was great. Uh, didn't do anything sports related. I would say I don't think there was anything going on while I was there. Uh, I think the basketball season might have been over. But uh, I saw people playing the paddleboard game on the beach. Oh, that yeah. wasn't just a... I can't remember what it's called. But the it's, Zohan. Yeah. It wasn't just a thing they did in the Zohan. There, even the, the Airbnb we were staying at in Tel Aviv had it in the closet as like, a, <laughs> if you like, like we, you, we have our own set of... Uh, oh, I'm forgetting the name now. But people are really Kadima. playing it. The game is called Kadima. Pro Kadima. Is it? That's what the one I had said on it. Okay. Um, but uh, people are really playing on the beach that seem to be enjoying that. Uh, you know, I saw some people playing soccer and stuff like that in fields, but not, not a whole lot of sport. Did you uh, pick up any Judaica? I did not pick up any Judaica. You know, I wanted to, uh, a, a good friend of ours is not Jewish, but, uh, is dating a, a Jewish woman. 
and I wanted to pick him up like one of those like really embroidered Svartic keepas. Oh yeah, the whole head. Yeah, like a big one for his birthday that's coming up. <laughs> because like you know sometimes like somebody shows up with one of those and you're like, oh man, this At guy, this guy yeah. that guy found God. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> or like this guy's smart. You know, like he, he really takes it seriously. He travels with his own keepa. That's right. Um, so I wanted to get our friend one of those. <laughs> you know, the problem is that like so much of what they sell at like the markets and stuff like that is just total crap. Like you know, just ma- mass oh, yeah. manufactured stuff. Uh, so. We probably could have gotten our friend like a Toronto Raptors T-shirt where Toronto Raptors is written in Hebrew and like yeah, Hebrew that lettering. Been, that would have been a good idea with like a hand-drawn dinosaur. Yeah, this is a non-Jewish friend of ours who has who has uh, well, uh, clearly he's a friend of ours. He's integrated himself in the Jewish community. That's right. And is uh, his girlfriend is Jewish as well. So it would have been great. Imagine him showing up at his girlfriend's like Passover seder like meeting relatives the first time and just busting out yeah. the, the big embroidered <laughs> yeah this is the kind of jew i am <laughs> yeah exactly that's, svards don't look like you think we do yeah uh so that's that's it on uh, updates from the holy land uh otherwise you know the trip was great had a really nice time um back uh you know stateside or at least uh north american side um the american team won the women's world cup uh, that's we talked right about last time uh megan rapino i think we said her name wrong we did that. uh but megan rapino's uh longtime partner sue bird and she was there for the celebration absolutely sue also wrote a great piece for the or someone on her behalf wrote a great piece for the players <laughs> tribune uh I, I don't want to go into the murky details of who exactly writes those things i'm but... gonna choose to believe that she wrote it herself because she's jewish but and that wrote... is good for our podcast yeah okay fine so sue bird wrote a great piece about her about her partner megan and and how impressive it was to see them kick ass. And, uh, you know, I think there was a lot of uh, secondhand reveling in their success and also just like their celebration. Uh, they were really going ham on Instagram. Uh, Insta ham. Yeah. The celebration afterwards with the sh- you know champagne, it was very much like what you've seen men's teams do, but oh, I yeah. don't feel like we've seen women's teams do it before. It was great. And, uh, you know, they, they, it was just amazing to see. They, they're Impressive people. They really worked hard. I remember when there was in the Vancouver Olympics, the Canadian women's team won uh, the gold medal. Oh, yeah. I and there was that. a controversy that the 18-year-old players on the team were smoking cigars and drinking champagne on great. the ice. I agree. But 19 is the drinking age in BC, and they were 18 oh, years old. Whatever. So the team got in some trouble from some uh, real British Columbia narcs. So also, uh, while we were on hiatus last week, the baseball all-star game uh, week sort of happened. Uh, A few notable things there. Alex Bregman. uh, Jewish. Alex Bregman, as we learned uh, a couple of weeks ago from John Mayo, almost member of Team Israel. Almost member of Team Israel, but definitely member of the tribe uh, and third baseman for the Houston Astros. Second year as an all-star. He's an all-star starter again this year. Mm -hmm. Uh, Very popular player. He also competed in the home run derby, as did Jock Peterson. The bashing boy chick. Of the LA Dodgers. Uh, And Jock... One of the Scandinavian Jews. I think there's there's Scarlett Johansson and him. Those are the two of them. Uh, Well... Yeah, um, he was part of a now epic uh, second round of the home run derby against Vladimir Guerrero Jr. of our beloved uh, Toronto Blue Jays, where they both hit 29 home runs in the in, in the first round. Then they both tied each other in the one minute showdown, and then, and then they, again and, in the swing and off. Then again in the swing off. It was unbelievable watching it live. It was so beautiful. Uh, these guys just smoking balls. Did you get Zoolander vibes field. from people keep saying swing off? It's a swing off. We got a swing off. <laughs> You know, it's better than when uh, Chris Berman used to announce. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's you know, true. Going back, back, back. <laughs> oh. It's a swing off. Yeah. Uh, so that was great. I mean, it's too bad baseball can't do more things like that. Like, I don't know what else they could do. Like, the way the NBA has the dunk contest and the three-point contest. Like, I guess it – like, I honestly, I would be I'd be interested in watching, like, people try and hit targets. I don't know how good baseball yeah, players really are do it. actually doing that. Was Dolph Shays ever in the dunk contest? 
Ooh, I don't know. Good question. So I don't know if there's ever been a Jewish dunk contest champion. Uh, we'll have to look into that, whether or not there's ever been a Jewish dunk, dunk contest. Yeah. Yes. Our producer suggests Zach Levine, yeah. uh, who is unfortunately not Jewish. We know he's as joking. As far as we know. Just a Mike Jacobs all-star is yeah. Zach Levine. Um, there's another piece of Jewish news from the golf world. Yeah, uh, that's right. As I hinted at Brinkley Romine's uh, profile of recent 3M champion and NCAA champion Matt Wolf, who won his fourth career uh, uh, start in the PGA Tour at, at 20 years old, born in California, raised Jewish, bar mitzvahed. And um, to quote Mr. Brinkley Romine, and I suppose this will be our uh, this week's edition of Jew or Not Jew, as we often tell that uh, week to week. Matthew Romine went to Oklahoma State University. Matt Wolf. Matt, Matt Wolf, Wolf sorry. Yeah. Went to Oklahoma State University. Before turning pro and, and to joining yep. the PGA Tour. With uh, Victor Hovland, uh, who's another famous golfer from Oklahoma State University. They were teammates. Um, and to hear what Brentley Romine has to say on the Golf Channel, uh, he talks about Wolf having everything, talent, success, personality. And I'll quote from Mr. Romine sure. uh, about our Jewish golfer. Last year around Thanksgiving, he messaged a close friend, Spencer Sussman. Something was missing. Quote, he said he didn't really feel whole, Sussman said. Sussman and Wolf grew up in Jewish families. They'd celebrate holidays, but weren't necessarily devout in their practice. Last fall, Wolf became curious about Christianity, which led him to Karsten Majors, a former Cowboys golfer, which works with the College Golf Fellowship. Quote, I gave my faith to God, Wolf said, and it's been pretty incredible. And added, Seussman said, he's still the same kid, but the difference is now he sees himself for what he is and what he can be. Okay. lot to unpack there. Interesting that the other uh, Jewish golfer that we've talked about recently uh, is Corey Pavin, who had a similar conversion history of uh, becoming born again later in, in, in his life. Look, I don't think it's for us to say whether or not someone's allowed to believe whatever they want to believe and, <laughs> and, and find God or find, find uh, meaning in, in anything they want. But the kid's 20 years old. This is like, I don't know, someone goes away to college and they come back with, with a Bible and they're telling you about Christ. I think you would sort of be like, all right, we'll see. At, at, at worst, you know, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. So well, I, I'm not saying this guy's, Absolutely right. you know, he's not, he's not finding something here. But uh, well, I'll for our purposes, with another quote. For our purposes, I think we can still consider him in Jewish at least. Yeah, Jewish. Jewish, Jewish by birth. I hear what you say. Have you had any friends that went to university? I know a lot of them come back with different YouTube cults or or beliefs in this or that. Yeah. But with the quote from Matthew Wolf after winning the uh, NCAA championship either this year, we'll quote from Brinkley Romine or whatever his name is again. Quote. To put my identity in Christ and know that there's a lot more to me than just a golfer takes the pressure away. Golf's not all I have. I have my family, my friends, my religion, and my beliefs. It's given me better purpose. Well, this is something you've mentioned privately a lot that, uh, you know, there's a sort of survivorship bias that happens with religious athletes who have success. Oh, yeah. That it's like, you know, 20 years old, this kid found Christ, I guess, within the last year and a half or so. And Around Thanksgiving all, And all of a year. sudden, he won a, he won a golf championship at the age of 20. Yeah, he the won only a million other, and a half dollars. The only other people who have done that have all gone on to win majors. Uh, and I think if you're him, you look at it and say, well, what, what what's changed about my life in the last little while? <laughs> oh, yeah, it's accepting Christ as my Lord and Savior. And, uh, you know, maybe you keep doing that. As sad as we are to seem to go, I think Jamie's right that uh, for all intents and purposes, Matthew Wolf 
prayed to Christ and it worked. Yeah. I think you got also, everything you wanted. You gotta, Why wouldn't he be religious? With a name like Matthew Wolf, you got to do a little more than that to escape your Judaism. That's true. It is Wolf with two F's as well. Yeah. Um, and his buddy Seussman, still Jewish. Yeah. So I, I guess so. Uh, anyway, so that's that's what's new in uh, in Jewish Jewish sports news. Um, I guess we'll move now to our interview with. Uh, Lou Eisen. That's right. Uh, please, please have a listen. It, it really great information about uh, boxing history and the history of Jews and boxing, and, uh, and 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 looking into the future as well, and whether whether or not there's a, a Jewish boxer in the future. Uh, towards the end, we talked a little bit about uh, Barney Ross, uh, born as a, a Dove Bear Rosetsky. Rosinski. That's right. And we also talked about uh, a famous uh, Canadian Jewish boxer, boxer Sammy Lovespring. Uh, and Sammy Lovespring was was part of the Christie Pitts riot. He was he was there, and uh, thought we'd talk a little bit about that and what it meant. Uh, you know, it was sort of historic moment in Toronto's Jewish history. Uh, for context for our international listeners, we know you're out there. We've spoken to you on Twitter and around. Yep. The Christie Pitts riots were a watershed moment in Toronto history, Jewish history, and Canadian sports history. When uh, during a softball game between a Jewish social group and a Nazi social group, social group known as the Swastika Club of East Toronto, in the uh, about 1936, I think it took place. 1933. Thank yeah. you, Alex. Um, it uh, the Jewish team won the game, and it sort of devolved into a anti-Semitic riot. Yeah, but the Jews held their own, uh, and part of that was Sammy Lovespring. It turns out, uh, and we're going to hear a little bit of that at the end of our conversation with Lou. Well, we're here now with Lou Eisen. Uh, Lou is a boxing writer and historian. Lou is a member of the International Boxing Hall of Fame Selection Committee and the International Boxing Research Organization. Uh, He's a member of that as well. Thanks for joining us, Lou. Oh, my pleasure. So we know that boxing is a sport with a lot of tough uh, physical history and a lot of engagement with the Jewish community at the time when the Jewish community had a very tough physical history. There's a lot of links, obviously, throughout the generations of boxing to ghettoized communities and low-income communities, as well as recent immigrant communities. All over the and world, yes. All so, over the world. So aside from uh, Jacob wrestling with the angel, what's the, what are the earliest uh, Jewish boxers that, that, we, that you've come across in your research? Well, there's a book out by a good friend of mine, um, Mike Silver. It's called Stars in the Ring, Jewish Champions in the Golden Age of Boxing. And I've read this, and at the same time, I have a friend of mine uh, from England who's a boxing writer and historian, Tony G, who's a genius, unfortunately has ALS, but he's written about boxing from the late 1600s to the uh, middle 1800s. And in his book, he came up with a lot of well-known Jewish fighters from back then. And, you know, boxing... I guess Jews were involved in boxing from the late 1600s on, as far as I can tell. And I guess it was probably in the 1850s when the first Jew was considered a world champion and came over from Britain to fight an American, and I believe it was Barney Ahrens. And at the time... Were they notably Jewish? Were they referred to as Jews in the media? Or oh, yeah. was it something yeah. they sort of had to hide? Yeah, they were. it was similar to the way uh, African-American and African-Canadian boxers were referred to. A, a little bit condescending at times. Mm. Uh, um, you know, the, the Israelite beat this person or the, 
the big Hebrew threw him down or the big nosed this or that. And at, at the time, the sport really hit big in the 1700s, mid 1750s, I guess. Uh, there were a lot of Jews that were famous. Probably the most famous one was Daniel Mendoza, right. the, the Spanish Jew who lived in Whitechapel. And mm-hmm. um, I've done a lot of research on him. They always claim him as the first Jewish world champion, but he was never world champion, nor did he ever make that claim. But back then, there was a guy known as Sam Elias, who was known as Terrible Dutch Sam, and Barney Aaron, the star of the East, who I mentioned, and his son, right. younger Barney Aaron. And Dutch Sam's son was even more terrible, Dutch Sam, which is what they called him. So there were a lot of Jews back then. There weren't any weight divisions. There was just, you know, Daniel Mendoza was 5'6", 160, and he would face guys that were 6'3", 240. Wow. And he would beat him. He would beat them. What distinguished him, well, you know, before a writer gets into writing, you're reading a lot of books. You're looking at other writers. Sure. Singers will go look at other singers. Comedians will go to amateur nights. He watched fights, and he just thought it didn't make sense for one guy to stand in front of another guy and trade punches. Why wouldn't you just punch him and then get out of the way? <laughs> so, so he invented he, he invented footwork. And, uh... Yeah, he invented footwork <laughs> and mobility, and he was the one who thought, you know, just hit him in the vital spots, hit him with your left hand to their liver, hit him in the chin. It, boxing back then was similar to UFC today, but back in Danny Mendoza's time, you could pull a guy's hair, you could hip toss right. him, you could gouge his eyes out, you could do all sorts of... And did they wear gloves back then? Um, no. Gloves didn't come in, I guess they call them mufflers. They probably didn't come in till the middle to late, very late 1800s. Is that around the time of the Queensbury Rules? Is that uh, late Queensbury 19th century? Rules, yeah, came in around... There was the first... There was Broughton's Rules in, I think, 17... early 1700s, and then uh, there was an up, update on Broughton's rules, and then there was a mm-hmm. new set of rules, uh, 1838, which were very similar to the Queensbury rules, okay. and it, it took out hip-throwing, gouging, pulling hair, hitting a man when he's down, and then the Queensbury rules just basically was boxing as we know it today, three-minute rounds, right. uh, have to go to a neutral corner when the other man... Actually, that wasn't in there till much later, but... Those sort of made it a bit more, I don't want to say legitimate, but a bit safer. Right. A little more formalized. Yeah. And guys like Daniel Mendoza were called Yid and Kike. And I mean, every day, Mendoza went to jail numerous times for not being able to pay bills. Oh, wow. Debtor's prison, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It it, it wasn't that he couldn't pay. It was just that somebody would present him with a note. You owe this amount. Okay. Well, let me, too late. You're under arrest. I guess at the time, boxing had more of a sort of, you know, almost like a wrestling-like uh, showmanship, you know, when you're talking about the the way they presented boxers and, uh, and non-Jewish boxers as well, sort of based on racial identity or some characteristics, something like that, that it was it was sort of like they, they were playing a character. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things was, and this, this is why Montreal today has been so successful in, in promoting boxing for the last 50 to 100 years. What what they would do in England, you would have Daniel Mendoza, the great Jewish champion from or Jewish fighter from Whitechapel, and he would fight a guy from the next village or two villages over. So you would pit the villages against each other as well as right. when he fathered Dutch Sam or Barney Aarons, there were three, four, five, six, seven hundred Jews. 
going to the fight. And back then, that was a dangerous thing because you could be robbed on the way to a fight. You could be attacked. You could be beaten up. You could get to a fight, and the police could arrive and say, no, it's illegal. We're arresting everyone who's here. So all sorts of stuff happened, but it took very, very, very tough guys to do it. And most of the Jews doing it, if not all, did it because they wanted to show people that you know, they were as tough as anyone. And that's why a lot of them in Britain ended up joining uh, the Navy or the Army, because they wanted to show that a Jew is as tough as anyone else. That links to Dreyfus in France and other similar stories of the time. Right. It's different today where anti-Semitism excuse me, is again on the rise. I was born December 1st, 1960, and anti-Semitism was as bad as it was today, if not worse back then. But part of the flow of it was stemmed when Israel caught Eichmann. Back mm-hmm. then, Jewish athletes in the 1800s going places had to put up with terrible racism, the same way black athletes did. And if you look at a guy like Hank Greenberg, who was 6'4", the great baseball player, sure. mm-hmm. well, Jackie Robinson had to go in the minor leagues, luckily in Montreal. But in the major leagues, when they played in the South, he was called horrible names. Greenberg, you know, in Detroit, if he played St. Louis and they called him a kike, he'd walk into the other team's dressing room after the game and beat the hell out of the guy who did it. Wow. He would beat him unconscious. Or if a member of, of the crowd called him a name, he'd just walk up into the crowd and yeah. beat the crap out of the guy. And then people thought, you know what, better leave him alone. Right. <laughs> and and there were guys like that who just said, I'm not, you know, I'm not taking that. Um, back from Mendoza's time in the 1700s, and you have all these other fighters from the 1800s coming up. And I guess around the 1870s or 80s, there was one fighter named Jewish, uh, Jewish Joe Choyinsky or Kowinski. And Jewish Joe, Chris Anthem and Joe, they called him that because they thought, well, he's, he's delicate, he's eccentric. But he wasn't really eccentric. He didn't like to get punched in the face. So he figured out how to move, how to get out of people's way, and he fought all of the greats, and his claim to fame, of course, is he knocked out the first ever black heavyweight champion, Jack Johnson, in four rounds. Right. Mm-hmm. And when they got arrested in Texas, where the fight was held, they spent a month in jail, and Troyansky taught him how to fight. <laughs> he said, a man as big as you should never be fighting inside and taking punishment. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, throughout his career, Jack Johnson, that Troyansky and other Jews were the only ones that were really friendly to him. He said probably because they were going through what I was going through. So I was about to ask that. Can you tell us a little bit about the the brotherhood or the uh, shared troubles that Jewish boxers and black boxers had to go through? Yes. The fighters, were they all knew each other. It's like today when you see fights on TV. They, most fighters know each other from the amateurs. So these guys were all friends. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they would they would help each other and look out for each other when they could because they realized who the common enemy was. And Jews weren't considered white people back then. A lot of right. places today they're not. So they, you know, did what they could because, like, a lot of the black fighters back then, doors were closed to them. Right. Well, we want to go to school. You can't really go to public school because we already have three Jews here, so we can't allow you in. 
Right. So a lot of a lot of what we've been a lot of what we've been talking about with Jewish boxers back in England was, you know, a time, as you said, where Jews were on the outside. And that continued on uh, as Jewish waves of immigration came to North America. And there were some Jewish champions early on in the uh, 20th century. Yes, quite a few, hundreds of them. And and there were Jewish champions from England, one of whom was one of the greatest. I was in the movie Cinderella Man. Right. And with my surrogate father, Angelo Dundee. Now, Angelo trained 40 world champions, including Muhammad Ali yeah. and Sugar Ray Leonard. Angelo was from South Philly. His real name's Marina. His last name's Italian. He was fluent in Yiddish. <laughs> I guess that was probably a common language at the gyms back then. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. I said to him, Where'd you learn to speak Yiddish? And he said, well, when I first came to New York, I went to NYU. And I said, really? He goes, no, stupid. What do you think? <laughs> 98% of the trainers were Jewish. Wow. They all spoke English well, but to each other, they spoke Yiddish. It was just quicker. Well, I guess the best fictional example of that is uh, uh, Burgess Meredith in, in the Rocky movies. Uh, Mickey, you know, he, he was Jewish. Mickey, Mickey, I can't remember. Mickey Gold or Cohen? I can't remember. I think it was Cohen. But Rocky says uh, Kaddish over his, over his grave when he, That's when, incredible. When he dies in, uh, in Rocky, I'm going to say Rocky 3. I, I shouldn't say this. Most people I know don't like the Rocky movies because boxers aren't like that, throwing a million punches around. Sure. Unless mm-hmm. they're lighter weights. Boxers are looking for openings and feints. But anyways, that's not germane. <laughs> it's inspirational to the lay people. Right. Angelo said to his older brother, Chris, who married a Jewish woman, he converted to Judaism. He said, what do I do? And Chris said, well, how do you learn any language? You sit there in a gym and you shut up. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So during the filming of Cinderella Man, there were words that were written in Yiddish. And Angelo was able to translate them into Italian and then into English. Wow. Wow. For, as we alluded to earlier... Uh, for black fighters and for Jewish fighters, especially in the 20s and 30s, like the mafia or uh, something like that, this was a way out of poverty and out of the ghetto. That's right. If, if, you, if you could keep your money, and mm-hmm. depending who you fought for. So there were exceptions. As far back as I've traced it, um, uh, I, I guess in the late 1800s, 1890s, uh, Dopey Benny Fine and little Augie Ogden were two Jewish mobsters that pretty much controlled boxing. And then it was taken over then by only the killer Madden, who who um, was really the manager of Jim Braddock mm. and who also grew up with Jimmy McClarnon, the Canadian World Welterweight Champions manager, and, and thus gave Jimmy a pass, didn't have to pay whatever. And then um, he kept getting hassled by the law, so he was uh, chased out of New York. And then it was Frankie Carbo, Mr. Gray, and his sidekick, Blinky Palermo. And they went to prison in the 60s, and when Palermo came out in the late 70s, Don King hired him. Oh, wow. And Don, he, you know, here's Palermo, who's 92, walking into uh, a black boxing gym in Philadelphia, threatening guys. Wow. <laughs> you better sign with Don or else. And these guys look at him and say, yeah, we're not really boxers. We're just here for exercise. Well, boxing, you can see, is sort of a sport that has an ongoing tradition and, and linking one era to the next. And, you know, with the lineage of training people and boxers who, who turn out, who 
train other people or you know set up their own stables when they retire that there's you know sort of an ongoing uh link link to the past like you're saying uh you know 90 year old gangsters in the 70s uh linked to don king who you know obviously produced or managed some of the some of the great boxers of the last couple decades right and don king was basically a product of the cleveland mafia i mean Mm -hmm. they got tired of the head guy getting killed or getting arrested so they said let's put him in charge (laughs) <laughs> wow! Oh, wow! You know the the thing the thing to remember here is you 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 had great Jewish fighters then in the twenties and thirties and forties, and with Barney Ross, it was suggested that he the mob helped him when he fought his three fight series of Jimmy McClarnon, and so I did a lot of research on that, and he knew mobsters because you couldn't be in boxing. Sure. Not no mock. It's the same as people would say, well, Frank sure. Sinatra worked for mobsters. Yeah, well, they controlled all the nightclubs in Vegas. So a guy like Ross knew these guys, but never really needed their help because he was talented enough anyways. But still, when these guys wanted money from you, there was nothing you could do. I guess, I guess, given the uh, code of silence that goes along with organized crime, it can be, it must be a little difficult sometimes doing research into, you know, trying to find out the veracity of some of these rumors uh, in terms of whether the, these things were controlled or the fix was in or anything like that. Yeah, it's the the code is D and D, deaf and dumb. And and the thing is, I'm only looking into people that have long been dead. I'm not going to sure. go to anyone that currently <laughs> sure and, and take a chance. But you look at a guy. For instance, I play, as I said, Ray Arcel in Cinderella Man. Arcel was a great trainer. He had, as I said, Ted Kidd Lewis, um, who who fought in heavyweight division from flyweight to heavyweight and was a great welterweight champion. And he said to me, my problem with Kidd Lewis was, uh, before a fight was, I knew that two or three days before a fight, he would sleep with you know, 25, 30 women. If I can eliminate the 15 or 20, <laughs> then he would have a good chance. Oh, wow. Yeah, so ourselves managing different guys in in um, boxing, and he's, just, he's splitting his meager earnings with his partner, Freddie Brown. You know, one guy would do the bucking, give advice. The other guy would do cuts and that. Used to do with Whitey Binstein, who was another great trainer, and he got tired of it. So he... He moved to Boston and started booking fights. The mob called him and said, we want 40% of every fight. This is in the 50s. He was booking for ABC, and he said, I'm not booking rated guys. None of these guys are in the top 50 in any weight division. They're just club fighters. And the mob said, okay. And then a couple weeks later, Frankie Carbo called and said, I don't care. I want 60%. Well, I was told it was 40. Now it's 60. You can't argue with him. Sure. It was the mob. So he he just said, I can't do it. And a couple of days later, he's walking to Boston Gardens. And when he wakes up, he's in the hospital with a skull fracture. Some guy hit him with a lead pipe like four or five times. And this is not even in the fight. Right. It's before a fight card that he would have booked. Of uh-huh. fighters who would never get a title shot or shot at any title because they just weren't that good. We want to talk or ask your thoughts a little bit on Barney Ross, very famously never knocked down in his career. And that was, as going back to what you said earlier, was very symbolic to the Jewish perception as being tougher than people thought. And uh, there's a lot of stories about him, as we talked about off the air uh, before we started recording. He 
fought in Guadalcanal, was a silver star, I think, as well, finished his career 72-4 and four with no knockdowns. Uh, a pretty impressive and notable guy. One of the all-time greats, considered the second greatest Jewish fighter ever behind Benny Leonard. Um, Max Baer was not Jewish. Right. A quarter, a, quarter, a quarter Jewish. We were discussing that before recording. Yeah. His father was Jewish. Ray Arcel told me once, I showered with him after a workout. I can promise he was not Jewish. <laughs> uh, the old method of verification. <laughs> yes. So um, Barney Ross got into boxing because his father was murdered in the family candy store in Chicago on Maxwell Street. Mm-hmm. He was born in New York, actually, and he was running around. He was so angry at the world, as anyone would be, and doing little running errands for Al Capone and different people that, uh, you know, local police said, you know, Barney, why not just, if you're really angry and hate people and want to hurt them, why not do it and get money for it? It just makes sense. So sure. he he went into the amateurs and he was discovered by um, um, Sam Pian and Pian, P-I-A-N, Italian, and Art Winch, who later managed Tony Zale to the middleweight title. And so he had a successful amateur career, but because it was the Depression, he had no choice. He had to turn pro immediately after, and he did. Mm -hmm. And he won the lightweight title and the junior welterweight title, which was not as big then as it is now. And the big money was with Jimmy McClernand. Now, Jim, this is a, a very touchy subject. McClernand sued New York papers because he was referred to as the Jew killer because McClernand on his record had fought something like 20, not 20, but I, I think like 12 or 13 Jewish fighters and knocked them all out within a couple of rounds. And what year was this? Was this sort of during Hitler's rise? Yeah, in- 30, 31, you know, 20, 28 to 31. So he may have been sensitive to the topic. Right. And McLaren went into the newspapers and said, listen, these guys are my friends. Right. I, I don't look at them as I'm beating this guy because he's Jewish or whatever. We're friends. We know each other. So I don't want mm-hmm. you saying that. And if you continue to call me that, I'll sue. And he did. Wow. Wow. So they stopped saying that. Now, he had a three-fight series with McLaren who was the welterweight champion. He'd won the title in a minute and 12 seconds. McLaren was the biggest draw in boxing, if not all sports. If I Correct me if I'm wrong, but is Jimmy McLaren Canadian? Yes. That's what I yeah. thought. It's a, uh, Born in Canadian Ireland, Jewish moved to, news. moved to Vancouver, and he was, I think, like less than one. Right. So grew up in Vancouver. And he takes a year off, which he said was too long, but he had brittle hands. And the year he took off, Barney Ross had six fights. And in each fight, he was gaining weight to get up to the welterweight limit of 147. Mm-hmm. And they were good friends throughout their lives. Mm-hmm. And Barney, so the first fight was in, was in uh, New York. And there's a lot of controversy about that one and the third one. Um, people were saying that McLaren was ripped off. But McLaren said years later, Barney won the first fight. I'd taken too much time off, and I just, my timing was off. But here's the controversy. One judge, after 15 rounds, scored it 14 rounds for Jimmy McLaren, one round for Barney Ross. Another judge scored it 14 rounds for Barney Ross, one round for Jimmy <laughs> McLaren. And the third guy scored it, I think, along the lines of 12 rounds Ross, three rounds McLaren. 
I was talking to other boxing historians, and I said, well, that would have to be the chairman, General Phelan, who was nice that you got to go higher. And it's really the guy who controlled boxing then was only the killer Madden, but only Madden was Irish, as was Jimmy. And the three judges that were appointed to judge about the referee and three judges had all been cited for various biased regulations mm-hmm. and previous fights. And for, you know, one of the judges uh, helped train Barney Ross for the fight and wrote articles about him. That's a conflict of interest. Right. So they have the second fight and Ross or uh, McClarney just beats him hands down. Mm-hmm. And then when they have the third fight, um, Ross's managers just say, well, if we have the same judges and referees last time, we're not, we're not involved. So they changed it. Jack Dempsey was named the referee, former world heavyweight champion, but he helped train Ross. He wrote articles about Ross. So when his scorecard comes in after the 15th round, he has something like um, two rounds for Ross, one round for McLarnon, 13 rounds even. Wow. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a fixed card. And the yeah. other two cards were similar to that. And after uh-huh. that, um, McLarnon fought three other world champions, knocked them out, and then said, you know what? I'm done. I don't so- need the money. So he retired with all his money. And uh, Ross... Uh, and as he said it wasn't personal with Jimmy, so I always loved Barney like a brother. And uh, but Barney went and, as you said, fought a Guadalcanal, and unfortunately got injured, and got addicted to morphine, which turned into heroin. The movie made about him was terrible, but he was able through his own courage and grit to come off of it. Now you're right; he was never knocked down, mm-hmm. but in his last fight, when he lost the welterweight title to. Uh, Henry Armstrong, Homicide Hank, after, I guess, around the 12th round, one of Ross's people went to them and said, can you let Barney last to the end, please? Okay. And and Ross had always been good to, to Armstrong and always been very courteous and kind and was a gentleman. And he said, sure, because by the time it got to the 12th, 13th round, Ross had a broken left cheekbone, broken nose, you know, eight or nine teeth knocked out, uh, fractured, uh, hairline fracture of the jaw. He was in bad shape. But sometimes the story is is worth telling. Well, he's in the International Boxing Hall of Fame. He's in all the Boxing Halls of Fame. He's, there's no doubt he's one of the greatest fighters in the last 300 years ever to have lived. He was great at walking other people into his punches, using their momentum against them. The interesting thing about their fights was that both McLaren and Ross were counterpunchers. Mm-hmm. So at the very first round of the very first fight, there's a good minute at the beginning where nothing happens because <laughs> each man's waiting for the other man to throw a punch. Right, sizing each other up, yeah. Uh, yeah, but but there was no doubt. I mean, Barney Ross beat the cream of the crop. He mm-hmm. raised literally hundreds of millions of dollars for Israel, but more than that, he raised hundreds of thousands of pieces of weaponry for Israel wow. in the late 40s and early 50s. And what he did was he went to a lot of his mob friends and said, hey, you know what? Uh, I knew I blew my own money. That's on me. But I made you guys tens of millions of dollars. <laughs> I'm not asking you to spend it on weapons for Israel. What I'm saying is weapons that are coming from here or other places that are supposed to go to the Arab countries, if you can divert them to Israel, because the mob controlled the ports, and they did. Wow. Wow. That's very interesting. 
So just, uh, I think we just have time for, for one more question before we finish here. And uh, I guess I guess the question is, in, in, looking forward, is there a future for, for Jewish boxers or have we, have we you know, gone out of the, the era where, where there's going to be guys coming up out of the ghetto and, and, you know, fighting at a high level? That's a really good, and I asked that question to the greatest historian ever, Hank Kaplan, who worked for Angela Dundee. That sounds tribal. Yeah, and Hank Kaplan... When I was in the movie Cinderella, and I'm not beating around the point, I will get to the answer directly. In Cinderella Man, Hank Kaplan said to me, you know, the script wasn't fair. Max Baer was a nice guy. And I said, but Hank, I didn't write it. Mm -hmm. I'm just an actor. I'm just, yes, sir, no, sir, Mr. Howard. <laughs> and he said, it wasn't, it wasn't Joe Jeanette that showed Jim Braddock how to beat Bear. I said, I know. It was Solly Seaman. And he dropped the phone. He said, how old are you? And this was... I guess 2005, and I said, I'm 45. He said, how on earth? He said, other than me, no one would know Solly Seaman. And he was a redheaded World Featherweight champion who took Braddock aside and said, this is how you beat a guy like Max Baer. So the Jews took the, the knowledge of the sport and passed it on. There really weren't any, there were Jewish champions after the 40s and 50s, there was one from Algiers, Alphonse Halimi, who was a world champion. And there was also Robert Cohen, who was also from Algiers. Since then, there's been Yuri Foreman. Yeah. He's Israeli, yes? Well, he's Russian. But Russian, yeah, yeah, lived in Israel. He was a world champion. Dimitri Salida got knocked out one round by Amir Cohen, but he's now a really successful um, promoter. There's a guy from New York named Cletus Selden, but he got nailed for steroids and then got knocked out in his next fight. You don't hear of a lot of Jews named Cletus. <laughs> no, that, I was just about to say that. That's the most Goetia name you can get. But, <laughs> but he, he um, there are Jews that are, that are in the sport and that are still training. You know, Bob Aaron's the greatest promoter of all time. Mm -hmm. And there are Jews that are taking it up. But when I said to Hank Kaplan, you know, around 2007, is there a really great Jewish fighter that you would call me and say, you got to see this guy, whether he's Jewish or not? And he said, no, no. And he said, the need really isn't there anymore because there's so many other avenues opened up to Jews. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I guess it's a, you know, boxing is one of those sports where it's like the success is sort of the, the end of the, uh, you know, it can't perpetuate itself. As I think you said before, it's a one generation thing for a lot of these guys. I have to tell you, I, I would be severely, and rightly so, ashamed of myself if I didn't mention Sammy Lovespring, the greatest Jewish boxer Canada ever produced. Uh, Sammy Lovespring fought a guy named Frank Genovese many times in Maple Leaf Gardens, always beat him, had to put up with 17,000, 18,000 Jew haters screaming at him. He got picked up by Al Weil, who was Rocky Marciano's manager, also a mob guy, Jewish Al Weil. And... Love Spring was a defensive fighter, and he rose through the ranks to be the number one contender for the world welterweight title. He was supposed to fight uh, Henry Armstrong for the title. He was ranked number one in the world. And the fight before, he had uh, fought a guy named Steve Beloys who accidentally thumbed him, and he lost vision in the eye. Wow. And his career was over, and he opened up a nightclub here. In terms of some local flavor, it's it's interesting to note uh, Sammy Lovespring was apparently involved in the in the Christie Pitts riot as as one of the uh, participants. Lovespring was there just in case, thinking something. No one called him, but he thought something may happen. I know how to fight, and 
when he heard the riot broke out, you know, some of these guys with Nazi flags were running. So what's going on? We're going to beat up the Jews. And he said, great, I can't wait to kill those damn Jews. I don't have anything to hit them with. He said, here, take the pipe. And he can't flush <laughs> the pipe, and then let's bring plants it in his skull. Oh, boy. So a lot of Jewish fighters, after their careers, became work for various Jewish organizations where when they had to put up with Nazis or whatever kind of anti-Jewish group, they were the muscle. If that's not a parable for the story of Jewish boxers, I'm not sure what is. Yeah, a- absolutely. They had to put up with hate and everything and and still believed in themselves and believed in their people enough that, you know, that they were they were just not going to allow it to happen. They yeah. wanted to do it so their, you know, their future members of the family could have a better life. Yeah. Well, well, thanks again. Thanks so much, Lou. Uh, we're going to have to end it there. Uh, thanks for giving us so much of your time and sharing. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, Sorry to talk your head off. Oh, no, no it was great. It's fabulous. You know, very interesting stories about Jewish connection to the boxing world. I think, you know, for, for those of us uh, young, younger generation, we're not as familiar necessarily with some of these old stories. It's great to, it's great to hear about the history of Jews in, in, in the sport. Yeah, thank you. Well, thanks again to Lou for joining us. Uh, really interesting to hear some information about a sport that we're not so familiar with. And, and uh, a sport with some real Jewish history. Just yeah. a, a quick stat Lou gave us off the air that we didn't get to in the interview. There was a time uh, sort of in the late 1800s when of the 500 known boxing champions in the world – over 400 of them were Jewish. I think you said from 1880 to 1940. Yeah. yeah. So there's a real period of Jewish dominance, probably uh, dominance of a sport that we haven't seen since, you know. Um, but that's all for today. Uh, thanks for joining us again. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Menschwarmers. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook at the CJN Podcast Network and get all our updates there. And uh, we want to give a thanks to both our uh, host and uh, CJN Podcast Network, our sister podcast, uh, the Canadian, Canadian Jewish, Jewish Schmooze, hosted by our producer Alex Rosen, our supervising producer Michael Freeman. Also want to give another shout out to our sponsor today, the CJN Essay Contest, the literary prize of the CJN. Open to all Jewish writers under the age of 29, Jewish or non-Jewish writers, I should say, under the age of 29 who want to submit a personal essay and you can win $1,800, a hundred chais of money. Yeah. So I think if you're a non-Jew, then stick to something Jewish. And uh, that, that's, that's probably right. You're it. probably, maybe your conversion process or the Jewish person you dated once that you want to talk about in a positive way we'll be back in a couple weeks uh hopefully with an update about matt wolf uh winning the the <laughs> open championship which i assume That's he's right. participating he in. could very well be uh to get involved with all the former jews turned baptists who love christ of ireland yeah uh yeah it's northern ireland it's northern yeah. ireland yeah roy mcelroy's home course yeah thanks for joining us again and we'll see you back here soon <laughs>